you're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. We encourage you to use this podcast only as a supplement to your regular attendance or membership of a local church that faithfully preaches the gospel. If you're in Birmingham, we would love for you to visit Iron City. See more details at our website, ironcitychurch.org. As you've already heard, I was planning on preaching this Sunday until the end of this week. And so I had a few moments, Lord, where should I go? And was thinking what would be best. I remembered earlier this year, Pastor Isaac was preaching through Mark chapter four. And in Mark chapter four, he taught us on the parable about parables, the parable of the sowers. I was thinking about that. Also, our upper elementary kids that are still in the service today are going through parables uh, this semester together. And I remember there was a Sunday not too long ago where I was planning on preaching this text before us today and I got sick last minute. And so knew this is kind of there for me to dust off and get ready. So this is where we are today. You may have seen the title of the sermon in front of you. Pastor Isaac loves us having sermon titles. The title today is, Where's the Gold At? There will be no other reference to the Mobile Leprechaun in the sermon, but I felt like this was a fitting title for this text. As we consider the parable of Jesus before us, I think it's good for us to remember as his people that no one ever spoke like Jesus. No one ever talked like Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus captivated thousands of people at a time, open air with his preaching and has continued to captivate billions of people over the last 2000 years with his words. Matthew 13, Jesus begins to only speak publicly in parables. Stevie McGee so faithfully taught our upper elementary class about parables a few weeks ago. She gave them the definition that's a common definition for parables, that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Often these stories from Jesus are just a few words, but no matter how short, all of Jesus' stories had a common theme. All of his stories were ultimately there to point us to his kingdom. These simple stories were designed to create desires in the hearers to go deeper, to ask deeper, often tough questions. So the deeper question, the tough question that I want us to consider as we consider this text before us is what do you value above all else? What do you value above all else? John Pollock stepped in to teach our upper elementary class. And this is a question that he asked them, the kids a couple weeks ago. He says, what do you want more than anything else in the world? What would you be willing to give up to get that thing? And those are great questions, not just for our elementary kids, great questions for us to consider tonight. What do you want more than anything else in this world? And what would you be willing to give up to obtain that thing? 
Our lives as humans are spent pursuing value. But the problem for us as broken, sinful people is that we often find value in the wrong places. One of my favorite authors and my kids' favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, so Clive Staples or the Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis was famous for saying that we as humans, our problem is that we are far too easily pleased. He gives a famous picture that we are like the kids that are content playing with mud pies. We've been promised something so much better. We've been promised a holiday at sea with our father, but we're content playing in the mud. What do you value most? Maybe some other ways to answer that question can be, what do you daydream about? What always seems to come up in your conversations? What you value most will never be far from your thoughts or your lips. What you value most can also be proven by where do you turn when things are taken away from you? Where do you turn after a breakup? Where do you turn after you fail a test? Where do you turn after you choked in the game, after you get fired, after you or your parents go through a divorce, after someone whom you love deeply dies? Where you turn in times like this proves not only what you value most, but where you are placing your faith and your hope. These two short parables that are before us tonight will lead us to ask some questions that will require more than short and simple answers from us. You can't be trite in answering Jesus' questions if you're gonna go where he wants you to go with these stories. Our kids' first lesson on parables was, again, where all of these should start with a parable about parables at the beginning of Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. It lays the foundation for understanding all other parables. And Jesus is clear, his parables have twofold purposes, both to reveal and to conceal. Look back at verse 13 of chapter 13. Jesus, this is why I speak to them in parables. That's really helpful when Jesus says things like, right, right? Like, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And he quotes from Isaiah to further this point. So there is a point that Jesus is making of concealing something. But the purpose in parables is also on the other side to reveal. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So things that have been hidden, Jesus is now bringing out into the light. He's uttering, he's revealing what has been hidden, what has been concealed since the foundation of the world. And this fits with the parables this week. We see things concealed. We see a treasure that's hidden We see a pearl that must be sought after. We also see things revealed in this parable. Both the treasure and the pearl are found. The secrets of the story have now been revealed. 
Kids, have you ever read a book or watched a movie where there's this big reveal in the end that changes everything? And then you go back and watch the movie or read the story again, and you have eyes to see all kinds of new things. You think, how did I miss this? But now that I know, I see it everywhere. This is often the way Jesus' parables work. These things are hidden from certain people, but once we have eyes to see what they're about, once our eyes are open, we can see the glories and beauties of his kingdom. The story begins to make sense. Today, we have two of the shortest parables, but two of, I believe, Jesus' most important parables. These parables, I think, are really twins, but not identical twins. The first of these parables, we see how fortunate you are to discover a kingdom like Jesus' kingdom. And the second of these parables, we see that we must seek after this kingdom. And the key point to these is we are to consider the value and the cost of Jesus' kingdom. It's the key point of this. You're taking notes. We must consider the value and the cost of Jesus' kingdom. With that in mind, let's look at the first of these two twin parables. Just one verse, Matthew 13, 44 for the first one. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We have an interesting story here. We have a man that doesn't seem to be looking for treasure, but seems to stumble across it. Maybe he's working the field for the man who owns it. Maybe he's taking a stroll, taking a shortcut across somebody else's field, somebody else's land. All we know for sure is he finds this unexpected treasure of supreme value. He covers it back up and then he sells everything he has to buy that field because he knows if he buys that field, that treasure will be his. We're not exactly sure what the treasure is, but we know that the treasure was supremely valuable because he sells everything that he has to get it. This is maybe a strange scene for us to think about, just a treasure being found in a field. Although our members, so our church just celebrated nine year anniversary back in 2014. As we we're starting, I remember reading a story about a couple in California that found $10 million worth of gold coins buried in their backyard. So probably connected back to the gold rush in the 1800s. But hiding money in your yard, your field was much more common in Jesus' day than it is today, unless you're Ron Swanson, I guess. Today, people normally put their money in banks and bonds or investments. In Jesus' day, there was really no safe place to store one's wealth. There's an old rabbinic Jewish proverb that says, the only safe place to keep money is the earth. Folks would often bury their money, especially if they lived in places where power often changed hands because of war, because you, a new people come in, they take over, they can come and take all of your money. But if it's buried somewhere, they don't know where to go, right? The early historian Josephus confirms this was a common practice in the ancient world. There is a question though, that 
almost every commentary I read about this passage discusses, and that's an ethical question of whether it is ethical for the man who found the treasure to buy without telling the owner about this treasure. Since it wasn't uncommon for people to bury stuff, actually Jewish rabbinic law addressed this very situation in a very specific way, and it was perfectly legal. It's obvious the owner didn't know about the treasure was there, because he wouldn't have sold him the land with the treasure if the treasure was his. This man could have been less ethical. He could have just ran away with the treasure or used part of the treasure to buy the field from the man and get the rest later. But instead, he hid the treasure. Kind of the way I hid some barbecue chips in our house this week that I didn't want anybody else to get. I hid to save for later for myself. I got caught by my wife. So he hides this and then he went and sold all that he had in this world in order to rightfully own that treasure. But notice the emotional state of this man when he sells everything he owns, everything he has in the world, he sells. Notice what verse 44 says about him. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy, this is not a tough decision for this man. This is not tough for him to go and sell everything that he has in this world, but it's his joy to do so. The main point of this first parable is that a man has found something so valuable that he sold something not just something, he sold everything that he owned in order to obtain it. It was his joy to sell everything he had in order to have this treasure. Let's look at the second parable about the pearl and then we'll finish our time discussing the significance of these two short stories. There's a few differences from the first parable, but ultimately I believe these end with the same point. The second parable is twice as long as the first. It's two whole verses here. Look at Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Yeah, I think it's helpful for us to have a little background, the things that Jesus' audience knew that I didn't know when I started studying this passage. In Jesus' day, pearls were as valuable and precious as diamonds are today. It was a valuable but also dangerous profession to be involved in, much like the diamond industry today. Pearls were a risky and deadly business. Free divers would take one deep breath. They would dive down often with rocks attached to them to go to dangerous depths to just find one pearl. If you have to risk your life for something, you're not going to sell it for cheap, right? I don't know if you've ever watched the show, The Deadliest Catch on the Discovery Channel. And even food we eat, even things like crab are more expensive because how dangerous it is to be involved in these industries, to catch them. The pearl merchant, who's the main character in the second parable, 
These merchants would travel from city to city, searching through markets, fishing ports, trade fairs, looking for high-grade pearls to buy and resell. Again, folks in our day do this all the time, looking for antiques, and there are whole TV shows devoted to this phenomenon. The merchant finds a pearl, but this pearl is different. For this merchant, this pearl puts an end to all of his searching. He doesn't just sell all of his other pearls. He sells all of his other stuff in order to buy this pearl of supreme value. So those are the stories. Similar, twins, not identical. But the question for us is what do we do with these two short stories from Jesus? What is the significance of these things for us? Unless you seek to understand how Jesus' parables point us to Jesus' kingdom, all you're left with in the end is a good story. Again, this message is concealed from people that don't ask deeper questions, that don't seek to know what is behind the story that Jesus is telling. Jesus actually makes this one a little harder. If you're familiar with the gospel, sometimes Jesus will share the story publicly and then, especially with his disciples, will give them the significance of the story. But this one, he doesn't give us any interpretation of it. But I think these stories are straightforward and really the rest of the New Testament gives us a clear picture of what Jesus is saying here. As we follow Jesus around as we have in Mark's gospel, which I'm really excited about getting back into next week, Pastor Isaac. As we go through the gospel journeys with Jesus, one of the things that we see Jesus doing often is he's going after the idols of people's hearts. And kids, idols are not just stone and wood and gold things that people bow down to. Idols are often good things that we turn into God's. It's created things that we worship. We see Jesus going after the idols of people that would never bow down to a statue. People like the Pharisees. You know what the Pharisees' idol was? It was their self-righteous religion. Jesus goes after them. And think Jesus could heal on any day of the week that he wanted to because he's Jesus, but he heals on the Sabbath. Why? to mess with the Pharisees, right? To show them they're putting their hope in the wrong places. The hope of salvation is not about what you do and don't do on the Sabbath. And Jesus is very clear about that with them. He goes after their religion, goes after their self-righteousness. Jesus meets a rich young ruler. And what does Jesus go after with him? His riches, right? This man answers some questions, dialogues with Jesus. It says Jesus felt compassion and love for this man, but this man went away sad because this man loved his riches more than he wanted to follow the Messiah. The Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, Jesus goes there with her, doesn't he? He deals with all the broken things from her past, probably the things she was trying to find her identity in, 
these relationships she'd been in, these experiences, all that brokenness, all that hurt, Jesus goes there with her and calls her out of those things. And we must ask ourselves, what is your thing? What is my thing? If Jesus was gonna have, sit down and have a conversation with me, what is the thing that's often keeping me from following Jesus? What are the things that I'm holding on to that I'm often not willing to give and surrender to him? And no, in love, that's why Jesus comes after those things. Those things that we hold on to will never satisfy us. So not only does Jesus have authority, it's loving for him to address those things with us. Jesus demands that you be willing to give up everything, all of your idols in order to follow him. Part of this parable is about the cost of following Jesus. But hear me, I think this is really important. I want you to know that Jesus is not unique in demanding everything from you. All of your idols will demand everything from you in the end. And if you're a workaholic in your job, if you devote yourself to your job, it will take everything from you. And let's go, you could, we could walk down the list of things and I'll try to keep this PG when we think about these things. We've been thinking about relationships, the things that we seek pleasure and even good things. If we seek these things, if we make these things that are good things into idols, some good things always make really bad gods. And whatever you devote yourself to besides Jesus, it will take everything from you. Jesus isn't unique in that. But you know what Jesus is unique in? He's the only one that can deliver what you ultimately desire. He's the only one that can eternally save and satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. Everything else, every other idol will overpromise and underdeliver every time. If you if you truly see Jesus for he is, if you really have eyes to see Jesus of Nazareth for who he is, you will be willing to give up everything in your life, not begrudgingly, but with joy in order to have him. If we catch even a glimpse of Jesus in this way, brothers and sisters, as Amy so beautifully pray, prayed earlier, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There's an old famous sermon that was referenced often in the household I grew up in by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. The title of the sermon is An Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And really the point of this sermon is that if we begin to see Jesus and delight in him, for who he is. If we have a greater affection for Jesus like he deserves in the things of this world, it will begin to drive away the lesser pleasures of this world. If you've tasted and seen the Lord is good, it begins to change your palate, right? 
begins to wean us off the things of this world that can never satisfy us. We begin to love Jesus more than we ever love our sin. We begin to hate our sin more than we ever loved it. Have y'all seen the new McDonald's commercial? Just as an aside, it's really hard for me to believe that one in eight people has actually worked at McDonald's. I don't know where, where they're pulling that from, but it's what they say. But I don't know when the last time you ate at McDonald's is. If you're a parent, McDonald's often provides a momentary fix for you with your kids, a cheap toy for kids that will break normally really quickly. But no carnivore in their right mind would choose McDonald's over a Ruth's Crisp medium rare steak. Once you've tasted something better and superior, it begins to drive out our desires for lesser pleasures that can never satisfy us. And that's one of the lies that we often go back to these things like McDonald's, go back to our sin over and over again, thinking it's gonna be different this time, but it never is. It never fills us, it never satisfies us. It makes us miserable in the end. But Jesus doesn't. He's the one that always comes through. If you see anything in your life as bigger and more valuable than Jesus, your view of Jesus is just too small. If anything in your life is bigger and more valuable than Jesus, you are not viewing Jesus correctly. Your view of Jesus is too small. Part of our problem, one of the things I've confessed to y'all recently is sometimes we can hold smaller earthly things so close to us that it blocks us from seeing the beauty of Jesus, to seeing his glory. And right here on this mountain, we've got Vulcan. I can hold something really small so close to my eye that it blocks me from seeing something really big that's right there. We must pray the Lord would give us grace to remove those things and behold him for who he is. In order to come to Jesus, you must be convinced that he is this valuable. The Apostle Paul had everything a little aspiring Jewish boy would have wanted going for him. He had power, he had position, he was going places. But the Apostle Paul gave it all up for Jesus. So what Paul says in Philippians chapter three, starting in verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but what that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus on that Damascus or Paul on that Damascus road saw a vision of Jesus that changed him, that changed everything about him, literally changed the direction he was going in life. Paul goes from being a terrorist of the church to the greatest evangelist of the church 
because Jesus met him there. This is something I often like to talk to my skeptical friends, those that are skeptical of Christianity about. Tell me what you think about a guy like Saul of Tarsus, a historical figure that we know changed teams, right? It's like he had a reversible jersey and just swapped over to the other team. What happened with him? What happened for this guy that was going in one direction, that hated Christians, that hated Jesus, and was willing to die for Jesus? Something happened. Saul of Tarshish saw a glimpse of the glory of Jesus and it changed him. He saw that Jesus was this valuable. The only way you can get in on this treasure, on Jesus and his kingdom, is by realizing that you are bankrupt. And everything that you have, to use Paul's language, which is much more stronger, strong in the Greek, is rubbish in comparison with him. We've got to count the cost. This pearl merchant didn't just sell all of his pearls and stuff because he found one more pearl, but because he found the pearl. One of the things my dad often says about my mom is that when you've got the best, you forget the rest. And the same is true with Jesus. This is the pearl. This is the treasure. Jesus is the one. It's worth giving up everything for. Some folks find the kingdom in different ways. Some people stumble upon it like the man in the field. Again, Paul in some ways stumbles upon this going down the Damascus road. A revelation comes to him. He sees this treasure. Others are intentionally looking for it like the pearl of great price, like the merchant, like Justin Martyr, in the early church, he went from philosophy to philosophy until he found Jesus, the one who made sense of all these things. No matter if you think you were seeking or not, it's the king who ultimately does the seeking. It's clear as we read the parables, Jesus is the one who opens people's eyes and ears. And once your eyes are open to the value of Jesus, how can we refuse him? We need to know the world will not understand our valuing Jesus in this kind of way. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the world is blind to the glory of Christ. They don't have eyes to see. The guy selling all of his pearls looked like a fool to those who did not understand the value of the one pearl that he found. The man selling all of his stuff to buy the field looked silly to those who had no idea that a treasure was hidden there. Today, smart investors don't put everything they have into one commodity. But in both of these stories, the main characters do just what my Northwestern Mutual guy warns me not to do. They put all the investments in one place, in one field, in one pearl. Those blind to the value of Jesus just can't see why you would give up everything for a man who lived in the first century. But Christians have given up everything for Jesus with joy for the last 2000 years because we realize that Jesus gave up everything to save us. Jesus left the glories and riches of heaven and sold it all to purchase our salvation. When you see the value of Jesus and what he has done for you, 
how can we not respond in joyful willingness to give up everything to have him? Jesus paid the price for salvation in full. Now he's able to freely offer it to sinners like you and me, but that doesn't mean there isn't a cost to entering his kingdom. That's a question we've got to consider as we close here. What is the cost to entering this kingdom? These parables ultimately are parables of the kingdom. What is Jesus pointing us to here? We all must realize that you can't be good enough to merit your way in or rich enough to buy your way into Jesus' kingdom. To be self-righteous or rich actually puts you in a disadvantage with getting into Jesus' kingdom. Only those who see the greatness of their need for Jesus can get in on this treasure. Again, Jesus talking about the rich in Mark 10, we'll see this, says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich, self-sufficient person to enter into his kingdom. Jesus tells another parable in Luke 18 about a self-righteous Pharisee and a overtly everyone knows his sin tax collector. At the end of the story, it's the tax collector that goes home justified before God and the self-righteous Pharisee who's condemned before God. We must be poor in spirit to enter into Jesus' kingdom according to his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Last Sunday, Pastor Dustin concluded the service with the last invitation of the scriptures from Revelation 22 after so faithfully preaching these last two chapters of the Bible for us. The invitation from Jesus is to come without money and buy the water of life to come without money and buy the water of life. It's, there's a paradox in that, right? Come without money and buy the water of life. Those who know me know one of my heroes is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was a pastor and abolitionist in London. And commenting on this invitation, he talks about these drinking fountains that were all over London in his day drinking fountains that anyone can go up to and drink out of. But Spurgeon commented, the only people that had to have parched lips on the streets of London were the wealthy people that would ride by in their carriages, but would never think about getting out and drinking from the same fountain that a prostitute would drink out of, that a chimney sweep, to use language, Spurgeon's language, would drink out of people they look down upon. I can't drink out of the same fountain as these people. Those are the people that can't get in on what Jesus is offering. People's pride keeps them from coming to Jesus. But if you're thirsty, the invitation is to come and drink from the waters of Christ that will alone satisfy your parched lips. And Jesus alone is the one who will deliver that we eternally save and satisfy. We may have regrets at the end of our lives, but you will never regret giving up something for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. It will be counted gain for you in the end. The way that we respond to the Lord's word each week at Iron City is by coming to the Lord's table as his people. This is the place where we are freely invited 
to eat and drink by Jesus. But it's also a place where we remember that this meal was purchased for us at a great price by our Savior. The invitation to Jesus' kingdom is for everyone, but only those who are welcome to his table are those who have turned from their sins, who know that they're bankrupt in themselves and can never save themselves. The only people invited to come to this meal are those who are poor in spirit and realize their only hope is that God is rich in mercy. This table is only open for Christians. And those of us who know that we can never be good enough to save ourselves or bad enough to satisfy ourselves, only Jesus can do that. The call of the gospel is for us to turn from seeking after the things of this world, the fake gold of this world, and to turn to Jesus, this treasure, this pearl of great price is worth giving everything up in order to have him. We remember what he has done for us, that he has given up everything to purchase our salvation for us as we come and we take the the bread and remember that Jesus, the bread of life, had his body broken to the point of death so that he might offer you an eternal treasure, eternal life, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We come and we take the cup and remember that Jesus' blood was shed so that we might be cleansed from all the idols that we pursued in this life, all the things we've gone after for pleasure that can never satisfy us. Jesus has died on the cross, his blood was shed so that we might be cleansed from those things. Would ask that you would take whatever time you need in your seat to remember, to reflect upon those things, to repent of your sins to the Lord. But no matter what you've done, or what sin you've committed, if you're trusting in Jesus, you are welcome to Jesus' table today. I'd ask that you would come and you would take the elements, the cup and the bread. You would go back to your seat and I'll come back up and we will partake of Jesus' table together. And we pray the Lord give us grace to respond to his word. Oh, Father, we need your grace. We need your spirit to open our eyes to the value of Jesus that he really is worth giving up everything in order to follow. Father, we pray that as we take this bread and this cup, we remember the great cost at which you have purchased our salvation for us. We thank you that you freely offer to us now in Jesus. Father, help us to live like Jesus is the one that's of infinite value and worth. Wean us off the things of this world that can never satisfy and grow our hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help us to live for the things that last in Jesus' eternal kingdom. We pray you do this work in us by your spirit and for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.